My good people, how are you? How you feeling? What's going on? Everything good? All is well? I wish I could say that in my uh, sports universe because today is going to be one of those podcasts for you, my friends. Here on the J Reels Podcast is I am your host, J Reels. If this is your first time getting a chance to listen to what it is I have to say about what's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of the hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. So welcome aboard, and for those who have been with me from episode 1 to now 41, I welcome you guys back. This is a Monday, December the 3rd, in the year of our Lord, 2018. Just four more Mondays left of this year because when you look at it, do the math, people. Four weeks from today will be New Year's Eve, and 2019 is certainly right around the corner. So with all that's going on in the world of sports, what I'm going to touch on here, the Met trade from last week, which was finalized yesterday, I have, of course, I'm a Met fan. I have a couple things that I don't like about the trade, but even more so what maybe could be a precursor to what may lie ahead, which I really don't like. So I'll touch on that. A little NBA, some NHL. Definitely not going to talk about that uh, Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder fight. So for the boxing fan who's wondering what, I, what it is I have to say about that, I didn't watch it. I didn't see it. So I do not have an opinion on it. So I'm sparing you right now. I'll also recap the SEC championship game between Alabama and Georgia, and the Final Four is set for the college football playoff. We'll get into all that. But we'll start off with the football here. And the Jets, we'll start with them only because they came off of a game in Tennessee, which they were ahead most of the game. In fact, Tennessee took the lead with about 30-something seconds to go. So if you're a Jet fan, I know you're sick and wondering when your coach is going to be jettisoned out of Florham Park. Because when you look at what happened in Green Bay yesterday, where Mike McCarthy was given his pink slip from the Green Bay Packers and is now unemployed, you're thinking, hey, when is my coach going? Can we get Mike McCarthy to come in here to fill in the last four games? Well, of course, that's impossible. But the bottom line is, if you're a Jet fan, you wake up this morning hoping for the coach to be gone, and as of right now, which is 11.35 a.m., he is not gone. You're also looking to see when your prize quarterback is going to be under center playing here in 2018 and you haven't seen that you only seen the 39 year old Josh McCown and you're even wondering where Todd Bowles's head is when he comes out and says during his press conference how come Sam Donald's not playing in this game and his response was he didn't have enough reps Todd listen I'm not anywhere near an NFL coach a GM of any capacity but you got to start the rookie quarterback. I mean, it's all there is to it. Here's a guy that's going to be here much longer than you are, and I get that you're trying to win games and you feel that your veteran quarterback is going to do that at 39 years old. But, again, underline, he's 39 years old. No offense, Josh McCown, but let's face it. Todd Bowles, if Sam Darnold was healthy enough to play in this game, he should have started this game. And even if they would have lost 30 to nothing or lost in the fashion they did yesterday, he should have been – playing and getting those reps, the key reps in a game to build towards you know toward his future. And there's no other way to cut it when it comes to the Bulls, as we've said for the last few weeks, and the coaching staff, Jeremy Bates. Certainly, he's not going to be confused with uh, Don Coriel, but at the same time, this offense, which has just been stagnant, which has done absolutely nothing, had opportunities left and right whether it's in the red zone or certainly in the Titans' uh, end of the field, and all he's able to come up with are five field goals. Because other than the Trumaine Johnson interception, which was their only touchdown of the game, they cannot muster anything on offense. And we get it. They certainly don't have the personnel. We understand that they don't have all pros in their backfield or in wideouts or even in the offensive line for that matter. But let's face it, if you're the Jets right now, And we all know they're going to clean house at the end of the year, so you're going to have to wait four more weeks. But there's no way, shape, or form, as much as this coaching staff is looking for today and looking to try to win today, that quarterback, number 14, needs to be under center from here on out. Because chances are they're probably going to go 3-13. and Is there a game on the schedule that they could absolutely win? I'm looking at it right now. Probably not. Who knows? They may actually beat the Packers when they come to town in a few weeks, but who knows? Now when McCarthy jettisoned from Green Bay, I could see you know Aaron Rodgers going off here in these last four weeks. 
despite the fact that they're not going to make the playoffs. They're 4-7-1, but who knows? Now that the, I guess the gorilla's been off their back, the proverbial gorilla, that is, and there's a breath of fresh air going up in Green Bay. I could see them just now marching here, trying to run the table to see if they have a wing and a prayer to even make the postseason. But if you're the Jets, all you do is just chalk it up to another bad season in its franchise's history. You only hope that brighter days are going to lie ahead. And you could start off with today. There's still four more weeks left. In typical Jet fashion, watch them win two of the next four. And their draft slot right now is number three behind San Francisco and Oakland. But you could certainly predict that right now at three, if or I should say, when the four weeks go by and we meet up the next time after the season, the Jets will probably be somewhere like fifth or sixth. I mean, wouldn't that be typical Jets? And you know they're not going to tank the season. They're not just going to lay down and roll over. You know, they're going to play hard, and the players are going to continue to say what they say about their coach. We get that. But at the same time, I don't see any improvement from this team, and if they're going to run the table and lose 10 straight, I tell you, that's just that's an ugly mess over there in Florham Park for the Jets. So let me move on with the Giants. They almost gave away a game yesterday, considering that they had a 10-point lead with about two minutes to go. And then I understand a lot of the talks going to be about Odell Beckham not going full throttle on the onside kick, where, yeah, he certainly pulled a Cam Newton in Super Bowl 50. He did. And I understand in the post game, the media was on him saying that, hey, You certainly can't get on me. Paraphrasing, of course. Nobody battles more than I am. You go question me as a player, but you can't question me as a person in my heart and so on and so forth. Well, Odell, not for nothing, you didn't go full throttle on that play. And I get it. Hey, listen, he didn't want to get hurt. But you know what? Why is he out there? Why is he out there? And I understand he's on the hands team to try to recover that onside kick, and for that's the main reason. And the ball is going to find you in any type of situation like that. And sure enough, it did. But he didn't come up with it. On the last play of the fourth quarter, a little trickeration by the Bears. Talk about creativity there, uh, Jets offensive coordinator Jeremy Bates. A real risky play where Tariq Cohen throws a touchdown there as time runs out, and then they go into overtime. Giants kick a field goal. The Bears obviously can't march down the field to equalize or tie the game. And sure enough, the Giants go ahead with a 30-27 to win. In a game, obviously, they should have had wrapped up long before that. Saquon Barkley is continuing showing how brilliant he is in his rookie season. Odell Beckham, we know, still had that touchdown throw. And it was a weird throw, too. I mean, it was perfect. But then again, uh, you know, I could have caught that ball. I mean, there was nobody within a zip code of, I believe it was uh, Russell Shepard who caught the ball. So the Giants here now at 4-8 and eight, and looking to close out the season strong. I'm not going to get into Eli. I know a lot of people got on Eli yesterday a little bit, and he didn't have a great game. But we'll save the Eli talk for the end of the season. But right now, if you're a Giant fan, you just want some respectability. Hopefully, you could close out. Maybe go 8-8. Eight and eight. I don't think you will. Schedule's not that difficult. But again, you're going to Washington this week, and you're following that up with uh, Tennessee, Indianapolis, and then Dallas at home. So there's your... Jets and Giants talk to kick us off. Now, usually I save the Steelers for last when I go through the recap of whatever week it may be. In this case, it's week 13 in the NFL. But I have not slept. I'm truly disgusted by the performance of the Steeler team yesterday. And all I can say is, as of right now, and I get it, this almost bit me in the rear end back in week four when they lost on a Sunday night, ironically, to the Baltimore Ravens, where... The Steelers were 1-2-1, one, and one, and it certainly looked like they were going nowhere fast. They turned their season around right after that as they won six straight games, and now they followed that up with two back-to-back clunkers, but one worse than the other. Now, last week, Steelers beat themselves. It was a game they should have won. Brutal way it ended with Roethlisberger, the pick in the end zone. So you think to yourself, all right, we were due to lose. That's not the way to lose a game. We were on the doorstep, and we let it slip away. You can't sleep. But you figure you won six in a row, you deal with it. But what happened last night at Heinz Field was totally inexcusable, and it left me more disgusted than ever because if there was any chance, 
And remember, before the game last week against Denver, the Steelers were sitting in the two slot in the AFC Conference. Now they're going to be entrenched in the four seed in the AFC, and we'll get to that later on. But as far as the game is concerned, there's no way, and this isn't to knock the Chargers because the Chargers have had a phenomenal year. I mean, in 9-3, and three, they're certainly going to be probably entrenched in the five, and we may see them down the road if the rest of the season goes as the way it probably should. But with the way this team performed yesterday, considering they got off to the fast start, Boswell, of course, misses the field goal, or excuse me, misses the extra point when they're about to make it 14 nothing, and we'll get to the special teams in a minute. But then what did the Steelers do? The Steelers, later on in the second quarter, Justin Hunter, who was overthrown by Roethlisberger, and Roethlisberger's done that a couple times. He did it in the Denver game where he overthrew Juju and James Washington on the sideline when they could have been walking touchdowns. Then yesterday, Justin Hunter, that wasn't his fault. That ball was badly thrown by Ben, which led to a field goal of 16-7. Then they tacked on the extra touchdown right before the half, which was on an unbelievable throw by Roethlisberger to make it 23-7. So you're thinking to yourself, all right, great. We're up by 16, doing fine. We got the ball. Steelers were able to move the ball a little bit in that first drive, but then they had to punt, and that's where the game turned. Because then the Chargers, and let's face it, they got a gift touchdown on the first one at 13-0, where the right guard, I mean, please, where were the officials on that play as it was a false start? He took like three steps back before the ball was snapped, and then next thing you know, it was in the end zone. Uh, How could they miss that? All right, so that's number one. Now, the second thing is, is that when they get the, the next touchdown, it was on a play where Joe Hayden actually had his hands on the ball, intercepted in the end zone, but then gets hit by his own player, Sean Davis, pops up in the air, and Keenan Allen catches it in the end zone for a touchdown. That was like a typical, if you played Madden, and it's been many years since they played it, but it was a typical Madden type of play where here you had the ball, it pops up in the air, and next thing you know, it's a touchdown. You say to yourself, what? Well, anyway, I digress. So you had that. Then the Steelers couldn't move the ball. It seemed like they were three and outs after that first drive there in the second half. Then they gave up a punt return to Desmond King where, let's face it, it looked like he was running through the Arctic in snowshoes. I mean, the guy is not fleet of foot, and it wasn't a great punt by Barry. He returns it back to the house. Another two-point conversion, which was made. And remember, at 23-7, they made two two-point conversions here to come back and tie the game. They actually took the lead. Later on, Steeler offense finally wakes up, move the ball down, they get a touchdown there, and then waning minutes, what about a minute something to go, Jalen Samuels, who bobbled the ball originally, corrals it, walks into the end zone, and then the defense there on that final drive. I mean, what could he say? And the first person I got to get at, and I, I'm not going to get too much on T.J. Watt because he's had a good year, and he's had moments where he's come up with big, big sacks in games, but I, I need to see a little bit more if they want to compare him to his brother, and his brother in big games doesn't show up as well. So let's just keep that in mind. I'm not going to get too much on T.J. Watt because he's had some pressures and was just a smidge off from getting the quarterback. But public enemy number one is Bud Dupree. Here's a guy that was a first-round pick. We all know from Kentucky. I get it. You know, SEC, granted, was the other conference. But at the same time, he has done nothing. And Dupree, although maybe has had a couple moments, but he's becoming Jarvis Jones all over again. I need to see more from him in these big spots, and you just never see it from him. You never do. That's number one. Number two, and again, I understand that he's been way off the radar for quite some time now in Artie Burns. He's had just an awful year. Well, on that play in the end zone with Hayden, had he interception hit by Sean Davis, as I mentioned before, he actually had to go to the sideline because he was hurt, so he couldn't go into the next play, so they put in Artie Burns. So what happens? On a two-point conversion, Phillip Rivers finds in the corner of the end zone Antonio Gates for the two-point conversion and it was on Artie Burns. And you kind of wonder what has gone on here. Artie Burns had a very good second year. This year, we all know he's nowhere to be found. And even on the one play where he could actually make an impact and certainly change possibly the fortunes of the game, no. The Wiley veteran in Gates, corner of the end zone for the two-point conversion, and there you go there. Number three, the special teams was just got off on this game, and I get that they had the block punt there in the uh, second quarter. All right, fine, you're going to live with that, and you're happy to see that you know they made a play there. But between the punt return, the missed extra point, and should I even talk about the field goal uh, lineup for the final play of the game? 
how the kicker in Badgley, and I knew he was going to miss because the Chargers have just had bad luck all around with their kickers here over the last you know, couple of years. And here it was, a moment where Ridgely goes wide left, and they called it on Hayden, but I don't think Hayden was the one offsides. The refs made the right call, but I don't think Hayden wasn't offside on that play. So then what happens, then Artie Burns then jumps out of nowhere, and the second one was certainly offsides, and the football, you know, as the ball's being kicked, it hits him in the face mask. And then even on the third time, he does it again, and he overruns the ball, and they kick it through the uprights, game's over. Uh, just deplorable. Uh, it just a, a terrible effort by this team. And all you need to know about the Steelers, and they put the graphic up, they were 220 wins, zero losses, and two ties when leading by at least 14 points in the history of this franchise. And those two ties, one was earlier this year, and the other was in 2002 against the Falcons, and they were up 17 in that game. I remember that game like as if it was yesterday. So here it was, the Steelers, halftime, with the ball, second half, and you're thinking, all right, let's just put this game to bed. Next score, probably even at a field goal, probably could have iced the game, but they weren't able to move the ball at all after that first drive there in the second half, and just a pathetic performance there on their defense, especially in their offense, and it kind of reminded me of the Raven game that Sunday night back in September where they couldn't even move. I think they had like 36 yards in the second half against the Ravens then, and then I believe they had 35 yards in those three drives in the second half before they got the touchdown there late in the game. Uh, just a inexcusable, I'm just disgusted. This team, for whatever the reason, they just totally just threw the season away because, let's face it, they go to Oakland next week, and Oakland's been a house of horrors for this team over the years. The last time they won in Oakland was in 95. And if you recall, all the games recently, just in the last 10 years, that they've gone there, they lost a game in 2013 where Boswell, or as a matter of fact, it wasn't even Boswell, it was uh, Sean Sweezum missed two field goals. And then before that, Antonio Brown had a big fumble in the game that they lost late, and it was 2012. The game in 2006, oh, I'm going through the whole history, but you get my point. They have not played well in Oakland over the years. And despite the fact that Oakland's awful and they were hanging in against the Chiefs yesterday, this is a game I, I, I want to avert my eyes. I don't like the way this is going. And then, as I said before, with the seeding, chances are they may face the Chargers in five weeks. And the Chargers have actually, they played well against the Steelers over the years as well. And in fact, the only bad game that the Chargers have had against the Steelers especially in the Tomlin era, was the divisional playoff game in 2008. Because other than that, they had to squirm Le'Veon Bell on that Monday night game on the final play of the game. And he actually got in by the nose of a football. They lost in the snow in 2012. They've had other games that they played against the Chargers that they just, they, they've fallen flat on their face. And the Chargers, let's face it. Now, Rivers is, when he, the way he throws these balls, I mean, I don't even know how he gets half of these balls in there. There's no zip. There's a lot of loft. I understand a lot of it is short stuff and dinks and dunks, and this is without Melvin Gordon. And that's the other thing about the steel defense. They gave up two rushing yards in the first half, and all of a sudden it was just as if the floodgates opened. So give credit to Anthony Lynn, Steeler coaching staff, especially, def- I mean, Keith Butler, I've had enough of him. I've had it. I mean, they certainly, for whatever reason, and I'm not going to get crazy about adjustments and things of that nature, but you know what? If they go into the well and they're running the ball down your throats, what's going on? So anyway, yeah, that certainly left me in just an awful mood. Uh, what could you say? Just a, just a pathetic performance, and right now with the way that their season is going, they're already, uh, I understand they're a game and a half because of the stupid tie against the Browns, but just to think, they were a two seed eight days ago going into that Denver game, and now they're a four seed, and the Texans and Patriots are now both 9-3. and three. I understand Steeler fans will look, oh, we played the Patriots in two weeks. We get that. But I can't see them jumping up in the standings unless there's just a, an epic collapse by both the Texans, who I don't believe in, and the Patriots, who they're the Patriots. And barring that, but remember, the Steelers not only play the Patriots, but they got to go to New Orleans. So it's not as if they have an easy schedule or they're going to run the table to 11-4-1 and, and get themselves a two-seed. So... You got to keep that in mind. Now, to go through the week that was here in the NFL, the Thursday night game was a, I tell you, the Cowboys probably put the best defensive performance 
of the league this year with what they did against New Orleans. Now, I understand you had some stupid calls in that game. The refs have just been awful. Uh, what could you say? And, you know, whether it was uh, Jalen Smith going headfirst into Alvin Kamara, you know, the punt that landed right there on the goal line, which they spotted it at the one-inch line, but it was easily a touchback. Walt Coleman and company, or Walt Anderson, that is. I don't want to mix them up. Certainly had an awful game. But the Cowboys prevailed. Good for them. As they're now 7-5, and five, and they certainly have uh, right in their season and won four in a row, and now that they're all alone, first place in the NFC East, just a great job by them overall. Zeke, of course, had a big game. And New Orleans, who lose, and now are the two-seed in the NFC because the Rams won in Detroit yesterday. Todd Gurley, what else is new? More touchdowns, 123 yards or whatever he had. I think he had 123, 10 to, 132. Now I'm dyslexic. So he had a big game. Lions, as we all know, long gone. So the Rams right now are in control of the NFC with their win yesterday and with the Saints losing on Thursday night. Let's talk about the Ravens as they win in Atlanta 26-16. Atlanta, as we all know, done for their season. Baltimore now, they're just a half game behind Pittsburgh. And I know I didn't talk about that, but real quick, they're a half game behind Pittsburgh. The good thing is, the reason why I haven't brought them up that much, especially in the Steelers segment, is because their schedule, they go to Kansas City. Oh, I'm excuse me. Yes, they go to Kansas City, and they still go to, to I was going to say San Diego, to L.A. to play the Chargers. Now, I understand no home, not a real home field advantage for the Chargers out there, but with the year that they're having, those are going to be two tough games on the schedule with the Steelers having their two tough games. So, although they could still take the division, I mean, it's... <laughs> Certainly not far-fetched for the Ravens to win this division, but because they have those two tough games against the top two dogs in the AFC West, that's why I hadn't really brought them up. Considering they had another effective game yesterday, I know Lamar Jackson rushed for 75 yards, had to go into concussion protocol, and we know his style of play isn't going to last that long unless he learns how to throw in the pocket. I mean, that's please, that's not rocket science or certainly breaking any news there. But when the Ravens, now with their defense having to play in Kansas City, that's going to be an interesting matchup because... The Ravens have certainly pushed themselves back into the playoff mix, and I'm sure they're going to be looking forward to a possible division lead to see how that shakes down after next week. But the uh, Ravens give them credit as they uh, beat a beaten Falcon team. Listen, the Falcons uh, talk about major disappointment. Who knows if that coach survives, Dan Quinn. Uh, We'll see uh, what happens there on Black Monday if he's still around and still has a job. The Broncos, who are certainly – fighting tooth and nail to get themselves there right at now 500, but Philip Lindsay with 156 yards on the ground, 57 that is, 24-10 over Cincinnati. As we know, they're a dead team walking with Jeff Driscoll at the helm playing quarterback with Andy Dalton on injury reserve. So the Broncos, even with an easy schedule, certainly have to leapfrog a lot of teams that are ahead of them in the AFC, and we'll go over that uh, once we conclude the NFL segment. Buffalo, Miami, Josh Allen, although had a good game in the air and on the ground. I mean, 135 yards rushing, 231 in the air, but not enough as the Dolphins win 21-17. And they have an interesting matchup as the Patriots go to Miami. And we know that's a house of horrors for the Patriots over the years. So, and speaking of the Patriots, they win 24-10 against the Vikings yesterday. The game was tied at 10, but then the typical Patriot fashion, they certainly go ahead and pretty much put a stranglehold on the Game as they uh, win in Foxborough, as they uh, as I said earlier, they're nine and three with the Houston Texans also nine and three as they beat the Browns. Even though Baker Mayfield threw for almost four hundred yards, but had three interceptions and key ones and key spots. I don't know how the Texans are doing it. They were zero and three, and remember the Giants beat them after that third game. Zero and three, and here they are nine weeks later at nine and three. But I don't believe. I listen. I'm sorry. I, I need to see more. I get that they've played well. Give them credit. Give them props. I get that. But at the same time, I certainly I got to see more from this team if I'm going to really legitimately think that they can contend. Forget about Super Bowl. Even go to a conference championship. So, and we'll talk about that more not only in the weeks to come, but also probably toward the end of this football segment. What else do we got here? Uh, what happened to the Colts yesterday? Uh, the Jacksonville defense finally, for all of its hype and everything that people thought of them being the best defense in the League, well, they certainly showed up yesterday as they got to Andrew Luck to the tune of zero points. That's right. Six nothing was the final. So that snapped his streak of, what was it, eight games of three touchdowns at least in a game. 
So you knew the Colts were going to lose at some point. This was going to be a tricky game because they had to go on the road after all their wins to get themselves back over 500. Now they're at 500. You can forget about the division now because the Texans are certainly going to cruise to that. But the Colts suffered a big loss there at the hands of the Jaguars. So their defense, for at least for one day, certainly looked like the defense of last year. Uh, as we move on here, Kansas City, Oakland, I mentioned that a little bit, where the, the Raiders hung on or tried to hang in there with the Chiefs. Chiefs win 40-33. to uh, Mahomes just a shade under 300 yards passing. But uh, the Raiders, again, you know they're looking at the top spot in the draft next year. And with the Chiefs, and I'll get to that right now, as a matter of fact. That's a good segue. The situation with Kareem Hunt, where on Friday, TMZ had released this video of him assaulting a woman at a hotel. Is actually in a hotel where he has an apartment in. And it's Ray Rice all over again. And since then, Kareem Hunt has come out and he's been very contrite. He's apologized. He understood why the Chiefs had to do what they had to do. Who knows if he's going to get another opportunity, which would be a shame. It's his second year and obviously a very productive player. We all know he led the league in rushing last year as a member of the Chiefs. But I tell you, it's the NFL not getting out of their own way because when you hear the stories about how the NFL, well, the Chiefs knew about it, but they didn't know the whole story as Kareem Hunt admittedly lied about the whole situation, which was unlike what Ray Rice did. And therefore, then when the videotape came out, it was proven that he did what he did. So that's old news, but kudos to Ray Rice. But at the same time with Hunt, now obviously it wasn't as disturbing or as graphic as the situation with Ray Rice, but there you see him pushing a woman into a guy, and then he kicks the woman after that. I understand there were epithets thrown and things that were said, but he should have remained calm and cool. And we get that in moments like that when they get the best of you. The one thing you got to remember, people, in this day and age, that if you're in public anywhere, in a building, on the street, unless you're in your home or in your apartment, you're being videotaped. doesn't matter. I do not care. And chances are, if a situation like that occurred and you see the surveillance tape TMZ, you know you got to run the other way. And I understand it's difficult. I understand it's hard. But here's a case where you have nothing to gain and everything to lose. And who knows if Kareem Hunt, I'm sure he's probably going to get a job because you're going to look at what happened with Reuben Foster there as he gets cut by the Niners and signed on to the Redskins, although he's on the non-exempt, or he's on the exempt list there with the commissioner, so he can't play, but he can get paid. But remember, with the Ruben Foster thing, no video. But here you have video, who knows if that's going to be damning enough for an NFL owner or GM to want to sign this guy onto their team next year moving forward. And it's despicable to think that the NFL, here they are, you know, didn't know about it, and we understand that, oh, we can't procure the videotape because by law... Only law enforcement can do that. Listen, it's the NFL. It's the shield. It's the brand. If they knew about this incident, and this happened back in February. You know, this didn't happen last week or two weeks ago. This happened in February. You think they learned their lesson from the Ray Rice incident? No, they could have right then and there said, hey, we need to see this tape. We need to find out this tape, whatever. How could TMZ get it in the NFL camp? I mean, that's all you need to know. And then on top of that, Roger Goodell, who's remained silent through everything, you would think he would... Say something. Say, we're investigating. Oh, this is another unfortunate incident. This is on my watch again. It's terrible, so on and so forth. I mean, he doesn't care about anything, Goodell. And I've ripped Goodell, and I have no problem ripping Goodell because he's not gonna, ever going to come on this show, nor he's going to go on any of the big shows because, as we all know, Goodell, he's only going to partake in an interview if all the questions are layup softball questions because he has the integrity of a, of a mouse. And I think a mouse has more integrity than Roger Goodell. But with that being said, the NFL drops the ball again, can't get out of its own way. In a situation like this, Chiefs did what they had to do. And considering that they're having a great season and actually a record-setting offensive season for them to let go of their running back, and granted, he's not the focal point of the offense. We all know it's the passing game and that arm of Mahomes. But even still, for them to release – this player at this juncture of the season, kudos to them. Now, I understand it's a no-brainer. I get that. People are going to say, oh, of course they were going to do that. You know, well, How could you even say that? Well, hey, you never know. Sometimes these teams will 
ride this sucker out. But the video, once you get the video evidence, it's a done deal. I mean, that's all there is to it. So that's your situation with the Chiefs and with Kareem Hunt. And who knows if he's going to get a job again. Uh, but we certainly won't worry about that until uh, probably after the season. So that's uh, the Chiefs in Oakland. What else do we have here? San Francisco, Seattle. Seattle, they've certainly made me look bad. 43-16 over the Niners. I know Richard Sherman had said some things about him not being friendly with the quarterback or Russell Wilson. No big deal there. Big whoop. Arizona-Green Bay, the game that actually got Mike McCarthy fired. How can Arizona go in there, especially with the elements, the flurries, the weather, to go in there and win a game like that just spoke you know, spoke volumes of how much I'm sure the players, and in particular Aaron Rodgers was sick of the head coach, 20 to 17. Like I said, watch Rodgers now go off on these next four games as if he's uh, fighting for an MVP. But just a terrible job by the Packers and just a bad season overall. And we all know Arizona's had just an awful season. But, hey, if there's a feather in the cap for the quarterback and also for their coaching staff and Steve Wilkes, a game in Green Bay, even though against a dead team walking, is certainly uh, good for him. And, uh, yeah, I think that pretty much uh, covers your week 13 in the NFL. Well, tonight you have Washington and Philly, which is a huge game for the Eagles if they want to get themselves back to 500. And then, of course, the following week is the big matchup where the Eagles go to Dallas to play the Cowboys. So this is a must-win for them because if they lose this game, you could pretty much forget the division because they're already down a game to the Cowboys head-to-head as they lost in Philadelphia a few weeks ago. And then now they go to Dallas. So hopefully, well, listen, it's a division game. They're not going to overlook the Redskins here to have their sights set on the Cowboys next week. So going to be interesting for both teams to see if Washington could certainly get back. What are they now, 6-6 six and six, as I look at their record? Uh, no, they're actually 6-5. and five. I shouldn't have known that, uh, Jay Reels. But uh, Redskins and Eagles tonight. Eagles are 5-6. and six. Redskins are 6-5 and five and, of course, currently hold the sixth seed in the NFC. So let's go through that real quick with the conferences. Well, before I get to that, let's go through the games next week. As we have Jacksonville, Tennessee is your Thursday night game. Big whoop. You had a bunch of bad games next week. Jets are at Buffalo. The Giants are playing the Redskins. New Orleans at Tampa. Oh, and I didn't talk about that. Give credit to Tampa, Carolina. Oh, how can I skip over that game? Cam Newton, I don't know. It's ever since they played Pittsburgh, I mean, they've just gone into a free fall. They are now 6-6. Six and six. They're certainly, their playoff hopes right now are on life support. Just a terrible job by Carolina here over these last few weeks as they lose to the Bucs. And the Bucs are fighting and looking strong 5-7. and seven. I mean, to think... They're still mathematically alive, considering the way their season went. They, you know, Fitz Magic, and then they bottomed out, and then the quarterback changes left and right, and then here they are, just a, pretty much a game behind the or game and a half because the Redskins haven't played the sixth seed in the NFC. But uh, yeah, your games this week are just brutal. Denver at San Francisco, Detroit at Arizona. Your Sunday night game is L.A. at Chicago. Monday night is Minnesota Seattle, which is a very fascinating game. Despite the tie by Minnesota, and right now they're on the outside looking in for the postseason, but that's a must game for them. Absolutely must. So uh, those are your games for this week. You know, Atlanta at Green Bay, Carolina at Cleveland. I mean, just some bad games. Well, what could you say? Well, that's your NFL. And then to go through the conferences before we take a break here and go on to other things, Kansas City at 10-2. and two. New England 9 and 3 with a tiebreaker have the 2 seed over Houston who is uh, at the 3 seed at 9 and 3 Pittsburgh 7 4 and 1 as we've talked about with the Chargers at 9 and 3 the 5 seed and the Ravens round off the top 6 at 7 and 5 and then following that you have the Dolphins Colts Broncos Titans all at 6 and 6 but in that order so if you're a Titan fan even though you're a game behind the Ravens but you got to leapfrog four teams to get to that final spot so just keep that in mind. And the NFC, as I said, Rams and Saints are your one and two. Bears and Cowboys are your three and four seeds, followed by Seattle and Washington. Then you have Minnesota six, five, and one, Carolina and Philly. Carolina six and six, Philly five and six. And like I mentioned, Tampa then rounding out five and seven. Oh, please, they're not gonna make any hay there, but uh just throw them in the mix for now. And real quick with my over unders, just to get a laugh. 
where do I have that here? Over-unders. Oh, right here. Uh, over-unders, we have Cincinnati. who are, look, They were 4-1, and one and they were about to be an over. And right now, are they going to win two of the next four games? Who do they have on the schedule? They go to the Chargers, Oakland, at Cleveland, and Pittsburgh. Well, if you go into Oakland and Cleveland games, then I'll cover. So you have that. Cleveland at 5.5, and, and right now, what are they, 4-7-1? and one? I may be able to win that. So they can win one more game. They win two, I'm done. New England, 11 isn't over. They're going to get that. And I already have two victories. New Orleans at 9.5, and, and Oakland, that's over. And Oakland under 7.5. And, and in Seattle, that's going to be a loss because it's an 8 under. So even if they win one more game, I'm done. Well, I'll at least draw even. But certainly that doesn't look well. And it looks like I'll probably end up being 3-3 three and three in my picks as far as my over-unders are concerned. So there's your NFL. As far as the national championship uh, situation is, go- is concerned, your final four is set where you have Alabama, who will face off against Oklahoma on December 29th, and then you have Clemson going up against Notre Dame. And the other tilt for your national championship setup. And, of course, all the rage is what happened there down in Atlanta in the Georgia Dome. Oh, not the, the former Georgia Dome, the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And when you are about to have dinner, if you're a Georgia fan, around 7.30, 7.45 that evening, I'm sure you pushed your plate of whatever it was to the side and wanted just to either consume a 12-pack of beer, two bottles of wine, or worse, a bottle of tequila. Not that I'm encouraging drinking here, but for the second time in 11 months, not only was your heart not pulled out from your through from your mouth, but it was also stomped on and handed right back to you. Because I couldn't believe that the Alabama Crimson Tide were able to come back again from the dead to win a game, this time the SEC championship there, 35-28 in Atlanta. And to me, the key play in that game is what in the world is Kirby Smart doing at 4th and 11 in midfield going for it on a fake punt? I mean, were you just literally handing the championship and not only that, but your chances of playing in that playoff just right over as an early Christmas gift to Nick Saban? Now, as it was, you had role reversal in this title game. So where you had in the national title game where Jalen Hurts had to go out because he was just playing awful and you bring in the kid Tua, I can't even pronounce his last name, but you know who I'm talking about. Tua, the quarterback, lefty. And he came back, and they won the game in overtime, as we all know, in the championship game. And then now Tua leaves with an ankle injury, and you bring in Jalen Hurts, and all he does is throw for a touchdown and rush for the winning touchdown. And I understand Kirby Smart is going to have nightmares about that fake punt. What was he doing? I, I, that just doesn't make any sense. But you had a commanding lead in this game. You had a big, also, a field goal attempt at 28-14, which went wide left, which was huge, because that started to turn the tide for the Crimson Tide. And then it proceeded to go on to a touchdown drive after that to make it 28-21. I mean, all you could say if you're a Georgia Bulldog fan is that you do not want to see any maroon, crimson tie, whatever it is, for the rest of your life. Because that is just one... Uh, I couldn't even imagine. I, I can't even express it. Because, like I said, and I'll articulate it much better this time around, for them, Alabama, to go reach in through your mouth, to your chest, ripped out the heart. I understand I'm being a little graphic here, but this is the only way to describe it. To have it stomped on and then hand it over to you after what you witnessed in January and after what you witnessed on Saturday, I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. It does not. That you blew two big leads against Alabama and lost both of those games. And as excruciating fashion as you could possibly ever imagine. So Alabama, they're going to be the – I mean, please. It's just a formality. I understand Clemson will probably give them a good fight because Clemson and Alabama have a history, as we all know, Deshaun Watson going back, not last year because, of course, Georgia, but the two years prior. And I'm sick of seeing Nick Saban's face. I'm sick of Alabama. I'm sick of everything that's about that program. And, again, you know, to me, they're like the Yankees in baseball or Duke in college basketball. Now i got to see his grumpy old face on the sideline, and I'm just I'm sick of it. Uh, uh, if anybody outside of Tuscaloosa roots for this man, and I'm not trying to, I, I'm not attacking him personally. I mean, I understand I say what I say, but it's just be, 
all the success, and we all know he's a great coach, and we get that, and all the titles that he's won. Understood. Despite the fact that Alabama's a football factory, but understood. You still have to coach the players. You still have to coach the team, and he did an unbelievable job there in the championship game last year saying, yep, Tua doesn't have it. We're bringing in Jalen Hurts, and they won the game. That's on the coach. But for them to win another national title, oh, goodness. All right, now to turn our attention to baseball. And with the Mets, it's another one of those segments, people, called the good, the bad, and the ugly. Or potentially ugly. I'll just put it that way. As far as the good is concerned, props for the Mets bringing in Jim Riggleman as a bench coach. We all know he's a National League guy. He's going to be a good influence on Mickey Callaway. I understand that he could be the next manager in waiting, especially if Callaway gets off to a bad start in the 2019 season. But to have Riggleman in the mix, who is a good baseball man, and obviously has done very well in certain places with the Reds last year when they fired their uh, other manager, was it Price, and they brought Riggleman in, who was the bench coach, who then actually performed pretty well there until the end of the season when they started to fade. But for Riggleman to be a part of this staff is certainly an upgrade over Gary DeSarcina. No offense, Gary DeSarcina, but Riggleman, as we all know, has that experience and I think will be a good influence to Callaway there, not only in the locker room, but of course on the bench in big spots. That's number one. Number two is bringing in an executive like Alad Baird, a guy who cut his teeth with the Kansas City Royals, but most recently with the Boston Red Sox being there for 10 years, and we all know the success that the Red Sox have had over the years, especially in 2018. So to bring in a mind like that, he's tied, I know he's a vice president of, I believe he's going to be tied with Omar a little bit with uh, some of the international stuff with scouting and things of that nature. But again, you're bringing in a good baseball mind, something that the Mets have not had in the front office for quite some time. So to me, bringing in those two guys, certainly I think they're more than good. It's actually great. Because I know the hot word of the day and age of this day and age is about culture and bringing in the right people. Well, I think those two guys are the right people for this organization. So to bring them in the fold, to put them out there, not only in the front office but also in the dugout, is certainly a plus for me. So that's the good. The bad is the trade. Now I'm going to say it's not bad, but I will say that I do not love this trade. Again, to recap, it's Robinson Cano. And the relief pitcher, the closer, Edwin Diaz, they come to the Mets, and who the Mets send back are Jay Bruce, Anthony Swarzak, and then the three draft picks. Uh, Well, really, Gerson Bautista, who is uh, the one player that's pretty much a fill-in, but the other two guys, Justin Dunn, who is their number one pick from 2016 pitcher, and the number one pick from last year, Jared Kalenic, who's supposed to be a good-looking hitting outfielder, so he was here five minutes, and of course they ship him to Seattle with the aforementioned players uh, from the Mets. Here's why I'm not in love with this trade. We all know the centerpiece of this was Edwin Diaz to bring that relief pitcher, and I get that the front office is trying to be creative in making these deals. Creative to the effect of where they're going to pay half of the rest of Cano's contract, which has five more years on it. So instead of paying $24 million a year or even, let's say, paying $20 million a year, the Mariners have agreed, I believe as of now, because I haven't seen the most recent uh, report, but to think that they're going to pay $12 million for the next five years, so they're only on the hook for $60 million. Okay, you could deal with that, but now here's why I'm not in love with the trade. Cano's 36. He's coming off a year where he got suspended for PEDs. Now, I'm not going to try to forecast to say he's going to be on PEDs or anything like that, whatever. No. My thing is, what's going to happen, especially in year three, four, and five of this contract, when you have a guy that's going to be 38, 39, 40, he's an albatross, there's no way you're going to be able to trade him. Who's going to want him? And even more so, and more importantly, as creative as this deal was, the Mets needed to get younger. And in this case, they did not. Because who knows what Cano's range is going to be like in years to come. I get that he's going to play second base this year and quite possibly can move to third base in the years to come. But I didn't like the trade from that regard. We understand that this is a win-now trade because when you bring in a guy with his resume and with all the years that he's put in, there's no way that this is a move for the future. I mean, this is definitely win-now mode and blazoned in full caps underlined 10 times. So I don't like it from that regard because now you're going to be stuck with this guy here for the next few years. I don't know about buyouts. I don't. You know, I mean, what are you going to do? The Mets are all of a sudden going to just say, hey, you know, in years four and year five, you're going to just release him and 
pay him whatever it is. Of course, I'm not going to worry about that until then, but th- that's why I don't like the, I'm not in love with the trade. Now, I understand. I think he'll produce next year. I think maybe he'll even produce year two on the rest of this deal. It's years three, four, and five that I worry about. And people can say, well, Jerry Reels, don't worry about three, four, and five until you get there. Who knows? Maybe you can win a World Series in the next two years. Well, if you can guarantee me that, then you know what? Then fine. Then I'll love the trade. Well, we all know there's no guarantees in sports, so guess what? I am not in love with it. I don't hate the trade. I don't think it's a bad trade. The prospects, right, we don't know what Dunn and Kalenic's going to be, but considering the history of this franchise, they've had what? As far as the position players are concerned, Daryl Strawberry is the only one that comes to mind as far as him being a success, and David Wright, for that matter. How can I forget D. Wright? So, so you got two out of a million when it comes to, and we can go through the laundry list of players that they've had over the years. Fernando Martinez, Alex Escobar, uh, well, Choa was in a trade. You know, he had all these guys that were top picks, number one picks, and they just never panned out. They actually flamed out. So that's the bad part. And then the potential ugly is all the stuff that I'm hearing about now that Syndergaard, not only is he on the block, but it's almost as if they want to like unload him yesterday. Based on all the reports that you're reading as far as the Padres are in the mix and several other teams that are looking to trade for Syndergaard, who still has, what, three years left? I believe it will be arbitration eligible after this year. And we all know the tremendous upside that Syndergaard brings. But, I mean, let come on, people. I understand Brody wants to make a splash here, and he wants to put his fingerprints on this organization. But can we do this little by little? And I understand people are going to say, well, Jay Reels, what do you want the Mets to do? You either want them to make all these trades or you want them to do something in the offseason to improve this team. And then at the same time, oh, now they're doing too much. You can't have it both ways. Well, guess what? Who says by making a million trades and having all these deals are a good thing? What happened in 2002 when you brought in Jeremy Burnitz, Mo Vaughn, Kevin Apier, Roberto Alomar? How did that team pan out? You know, you want to make wise deals. And I understand that Cano was more for the relief pitcher because he has four years left before he becomes a free agent. He's not even arbitration eligible for another two years. You have a closer. He's 24 years old. Who knows how he's going to respond to the pressure, to the media, etc. All right, that's another question for another day. But we understand why the Mets made that trade. But if you're trading Syndergaard for prospects, and not even top prospects, because I believe the rumor was is that they reached out to the Padres or the Padres reached out to them and they said, hey, Fernando Tatis Jr. is like, no, but we'll give you X, Y, and Z prospects. Well, guess what? If you're not bringing back Fernando Tatis Jr., I don't even, I don't even want prospects. I want everyday players. Put it this way. If you want to unload Syndergaard so bad, call, what's it called? Call Houston Astros and ask him for George Springer and see if they hang up the phone. Or Chris Bryant. Now, I understand he's coming off a bad year, injuries, but he's still young. I understand he's a Boris client too. But bring back a person of that ilk. Don't give me prospects. Don't give me, I don't care if this guy is a can't miss. No. And then to make matters worse, on top of that, now they're rumored to be in the mix for Corey Kluber? I do not want Corey Kluber on my team. I am sorry. No offense to Corey Kluber. We understand two Cy Youngs or whatever, but we know how he's pitched in the postseason, and he's been awful. And I don't want to hear because, oh, we reunite him with Mickey Calloway. He's going to be that type of pitcher. He's going to pitch at City Field, pitcher's ballpark, et cetera. Uh-uh. For that, just keep Syndergaard. So what? You mean to tell me that you're going to trade Syndergaard for prospects to replenish the farm system and then bring in Kluber, which – they have no prospects to begin with. So what are you going to do? You're going to trade Syndergaard first and then trade some of those prospects to Cleveland to bring Kluber in? Where to me, Kluber, I think maybe has already hit his ceiling as far as the pitch in Major League Baseball is concerned. I believe he's 30 years old. It's not as if, it's not as if he's going to get better. The thing with Syndergaard is, is that he just needs to stay healthy. Because we've seen Syndergaard in big moments in the postseason, in a World Series. And last year, even though, what was he? He was 13-4 and with a three-year RA. Now, granted, he wasn't the lights-out pitcher that we once saw, especially back in 2015 and the early part of 16. Well, most of 16, I should say, because 17 and 18 he was hurt. But if you're a Met fan, you're going to endorse training Syndergaard for prospects and not bringing back major league talent that's going to help you today? And then last but not least with the Mets, how are they going to tender a contract to Travis Darno? 
No offense. Travis Darno stubs his toe. He's out for the year. Guy's hangnail. He's on the DL. And they non-tender Wilmer. I, I understand that. It's a tough break. We know the Met fan is going to always endear Wilmer Flores, you know, from here on out. But you know what? There's not a position for him on this team. We know he can hit lefties. We could probably play first base, a little bit of second. But the situation with first base now, you even have maybe reports that Kanoka maybe play first base, which I think that's, listen, with the money he's making, they're going to have to play him somewhere if he's not going to play third down the road or whatever, maybe first base. But with Peter Alonso looming, in the distance, who knows with Dom Smith if he's ever going to show up and play to his first-round potential. Yeah, and there's no place for Wilmer to be on this team. There isn't. He's not going to play second. He's not going to play first. Third base is just a holding spot for whomever's going to play in 2019, or excuse me, in 2020, because Todd Frazier's there now, and you got Rosario at short. But Darno to bring him back? You want to keep Ploiecki as a backup catcher? Fine. I can live with that. You bring him back, Darno? Oh, my God. That's the ugly part. And it's typical Mets. I mean, we're, you know, listen, I, I like that they're being aggressive. I like that they're being creative. And this trade was an indicator of that. And rightfully so. You'll sign for it. You'll be like, all right, great. We understand the back end of the contract, the issues that I have with that. But you bring in a relief pitcher. Hopefully he could perform here the way he performed in Seattle and that the team could hopefully play some meaningful games in September. And especially with a guy like Diaz at the back of the bullpen. Now, of course, they're far from done. They still need to get some more bullpen help, but that's a start. But with that, all that being said, they have to be smart here. They just can't make moves to make moves. You know, this isn't rotisserie baseball where, hey, I'll trade you this guy for that guy. Or, yeah, it's not. Brody doesn't need to hit a grand slam in his first offseason as Met GM. He does not. We all know singles and doubles, and I understand the Mets have hit a lot of singles and doubles in the offseason. Just look at last year which a lot of them were actually strikeouts, the Anthony Swarzak, the Jason Vargas, et cetera. But you know what? This is one move. He doesn't need to trade Syndergaard for prospects. Now, if you bring him back Mike Trout, then uh, <laughs> and you need a center fielder, then fine. If Syndergaard's going to bring you back Real Muto, which we know the Marlins aren't going to trade in the division, with, but that's my point. If you're going to bring back Real Muto, then you know what? Hey, that's something you got to consider. But if... You're just going to make trades for trade sakes. And even though I understand it's to improve the team, but you got to be smart about it. Let's be a little wise about it. We understand the fan base is starving and we're, we're dying for a winner, et cetera. But no, we don't need to move this uh, offseason as if it's a checkerboard where we're just going to make all these moves just for the sake of making them and also to appease the fan. No, be smart about it. So that's my take with the Mets. Uh, a couple other things before we say uh, – Goodbye. As far as the NBA is concerned, the Knicks and uh, Frank Nilakina, who knows if uh, his days are numbered in a Knicks uniform. Of course, he hasn't performed well. Neither has Kevin Knox. I mean, he hasn't been well. Although the Knicks have played better after that six-game losing streak, they've actually won four of six, so give him a little credit. But as far as the point guard is concerned, we understand that was under Phil Jackson's watch, so who knows if there's going to be anybody. I know Portland, even the Brooklyn Nets were actually, hey, Interested in seeing if they can acquire services. We know he can play defense. His offensive game is from hunger. But uh, something just to keep in mind there, if Neil Aquino is going to be a guy that uh, may be jettisoned somewhere else here, uh, maybe not so soon. Because uh, who knows? As you get closer to the end of the year, and especially once you get into the full swing of the NBA season leading into the All-Star break, who knows if he'll still be a part of the Nick uh, fabric uh, as we head uh, deeper into the season. And as far as this, you know, Sandy's are concerned, you know, the Nets have been, been awful here. They lost a brutal game the other night. They were up by seven with 30 seconds to go and they lose. I mean, how's that happen? I mean, that's just a uh, – I understand you want to see strides. And the Nets, you know, certainly got off to a decent start, but now they lost six in a row and they're actually tied with the Knicks, eight and 16 in the uh, Eastern Conference. So that's all you need to know about how they've been playing recently. But as far as uh, anything that just raises an eyebrow, you know, Golden State's now 15-9. and nine. They certainly haven't played well. Lakers, of course, have played pretty well here. Now they're uh, – in fact, if the season ended today, your first-round series would be Golden State and the Lakers. So talk about, uh, talk about some drama there. That would certainly be a very interesting first round. But although one of those two teams would be gone for the rest of the postseason, but still. Uh, but other than that, 
Celtics is trying to get back to winning ways. They've won three in a row. Sixers have played well here. The Bucks, I know that's going to be a big thing the next time the Knicks and Bucks play, which I know they play on Christmas Day. They're the first game, the 12 o'clock game, come Christmas Day, where uh, Hazonia, the Mario Hazonia dunked on Giannis, and then he stepped over him, and Giannis says, oh, yeah, there's going to be hell to pay, paraphrasing, of course. Uh, there's going to be some payback, so we'll see how that uh, shakes down in the, uh, on that day. I don't know if they play before then. I don't think they do, but if not, certainly Christmas could have a uh, little surprise under the tree between Giannis and her, Hazonia when that time comes. But uh, it's just interesting. You know, look at Thunder, uh, Oklahoma City. They started off 0-4. They've been 14-3 and ever since. Yeah, and the NBA, that's you know, pretty much what you have. You know, nothing else really to sink your teeth into here as we're now, what, uh, 25 games, certainly more than a quarter into the season. So that's what you have there with the NBA, NHL. You know, the Islanders made it back to the Coliseum for the first time in three and a half years. They beat Columbus, who actually that was the last time they played in the Coliseum in a regular season game. Uh, and the Islanders are playing pretty well. Rangers and Devils, not so much. Devils have now lost five in a row. Rangers, have, uh, after losing yesterday, they had a 3 nothing lead, and they lose in a shootout to Winnipeg. But the NHL, and I'm going to say this, Tom Wilson, who got suspended there in the preseason on that hit, that kid on St. Louis had a uh, 20-game suspension or was reduced to, to whatever it was. Well, he had a hit in the Devil game there on Friday night where he – and I mean, let's face it, it was a blindside cheap shot hit. It was a bad hit where he hit uh, Brett Sini, and who knows if there's going to be anything coming down from that as far as that's concerned. All I got to say is this. If this was the NHL 30 years ago, that would not happen because when you have a player like Tom Wilson who does fight, you know, he's not a type of guy where he's going to turtle or shy away from fights. But let's add, he wears a shield, okay? And please, there's too many players in the league that wear shields who fight, and that's bad enough. You know, you don't have the old school enforcers without the shield. But be that as it may, if this was hockey 30 years ago, Tom Wilson would do that, but guess what? He would have to face a Cam Neely. He would have to face even, let's go even to super heavyweights. And that's not to knock Cam Neely because we all know he's the type of guy who did fight when he had to, but he was more of a goal scorer and needed to be on the ice more than in the penalty box. But if this was then, he would have to deal with a Bob Probert, a Joe Koser, a Darren Kimball, a Tony Twist, a Stu Grimson. A, shall I continue? And because there's not many players left, the NHL enforces an endangered species thanks to another commissioner in sports, Gary Bettman. Players could leave from their feet or have these vicious hits and, right, there's no tough guys or nobody to police the ice to say, hey, that's the last time you're going to do this. Here's a few fists to your face. And I understand it may come across as strong, but that's the NHL that I knew and grew up with. And we all know that's a shell from its old self, and I know I've been saying this time and time again for weeks on end, but you know what? I'm getting my point across. This is why I have this podcast. And I'm sure there's a lot of people in the the fan that's over 35, I'm sure they're right behind me when it comes to that. So so that's your uh, little NHL recap as uh, we continue here on the J-Rules podcast. Let's see. What else we got uh, left? No, that's pretty much it. Now that I think about it, we've covered uh, pretty much everything. Yeah, obviously I'm not going to talk about the fight there with Wild and Fury. I mentioned it at the top, but please, no need to further delve into that. But uh, people, as I say each and every week, Please spread the word. Share with anybody and everybody that you know is into and love sports. Again, this is the J Reels Podcast. You could uh, find my podcast on my website at jreels.com. Uh, of course, that's J-A-Y-R-E-E-L-Z. You could also find me on Instagram, J Reels, Twitter, J Reels 1, just a number, and on Facebook, the J Reels Podcast page. And, of course, where else can you find this podcast? On Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, even on Spotify, people, as much as you can stream your music on Spotify, you can find my podcast there. And please, leave a rating, post a review. I know you guys are on your phones all day, scrolling through Instagram and all that. Well, guess what? If you just go to any of those platforms that I mentioned that host my podcast, all you got to do is just hit subscribe, type in a comment, let me know what you think, let other people know what you think, what you feel, leave a rating, which is important because in this podcast universe, which is vast, and it's going to continue to grow as much as it's been growing, especially against the other sports podcasts. It's only going to increase its visibility 
and also popularity and in turn will also generate more guests. And I understand I haven't had guests, although I will have a note in a minute for, is for my next guest. And all that's going to do is just increase that. So people, please, take seconds on your phones, tablets, wherever it may be. And not only that, when you do that, when you do subscribe, and you know I'm here each and every Monday, the minute it comes out, it's going to pop up on your phone. All you have to do is just download it. Or you can just play it right straight from your phone or tablet or your device, whatever it is that you use, and I'll be right on there. And again, I would greatly appreciate it if you do so. Uh, if you need to send me any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, the aforementioned social media platforms, and of course, as well as the JRills podcast at gmail.com. That's the email address for this program. And I appreciate each and every one of you people for taking a chance and an opportunity to listen to what it is I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports each and every week here on the JRills podcast. I forgot something. Yes, I may have another podcast later this week. I won't talk sports, it'll just be one podcast. And it's actually going to center around a particular tough guy who fought back in the 80s, one of my favorite players of all time, Bob Probert. That's just your hint. But certainly, I'll keep you informed about that podcast on those aforementioned social media platforms. And I promise you, it's going to be a good one. So you certainly want to stay tuned for that. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until next time on the J-Rose Podcast, on the flip page.